This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach. We do what we can on this program to give you the tools to live a healthier, happier life. Uh, you know, we want to make sure you know what you need in this world. We won't just give you the news. We're actually going to bring in some of the latest uh, thinkers and uh, research to help you grow a healthier, happier life for you and your family. Welcome to the program today again. Another great show. Holy cow. I think we're going to blow your mind this morning. Really? A mind blower. Uh, we have a basically a historian and a... Uh, 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 how do we set this up? Richard Rothstein's going to be joining us. And um, if you've been worried about Baltimore and Ferguson and Cleveland... All of these places where there's been unrest, you need to listen to the show because uh, Richard Rothstein um, believes that maybe some of the problems that are being created in these uh, in some of the inner cities, they they're probably more complex than just a policing issue. You have a lot of people that feel oppressed, stuck. And uh, he would even call it back to the ghettos. And the ghettos, again, is a pretty, you know, value-laden word. And and he's going to be teaching us that, um, you know, maybe there's been some serious traditional historic discrimination. If you you watch any of the coverage of Ferguson or Baltimore, it started with an incident, obviously. And then it progressed to, okay, the police have some demographic issues when it comes to the general population. Yeah. Then you start growing out from there, and you just start, you see just problems stacking on top of problems. And there's no opportunities, and there's no employment. And some people uh, you'd hear interviewed tried to approach this type of a topic, but no one let it actually go that far because then there was another press conference That's or right. something else happened. But this is kind of historically like the last 50, 60, 70 years that there's been public policy and different decisions made that have probably led to some of the stresses and issues that we're dealing with today. Our guest coming up, Richard Rothstein, is a research associate at the Economic Policy Institute, and he's going to just show us how 50, 60, 70 years of economic policy may have created a segregated ghetto. And he uses the word very intentionally, and it's not to just inflame everybody, but ghetto by definition is is exactly what we've got in many of our inner cities. And so he's here to teach us about that. He's actually going to be on the phone to teach us about that. He's an economic policy senior fellow and chief uh, of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at the University of California School of Law at Berkeley. So he'll be uh, he'll be enlightening us there. Also, uh, what is the deal with uh, FIFA? Don't tell me soccer's going to be ruined now. Another world-governing body is somehow corrupt. Reminds me of the Olympics. Swiss authorities arrested and detained nine FIFA officials in Zurich early Wednesday in a corruption investigation into soccer's governing body over the last 20 years. 
The officials have been detained pending extradition to the U.S., where the Justice Department is preparing to indict 14 people on charges of wire fraud, racketeering, and money laundering for everything from bribes for World Cup to broadcast deals. See, this doesn't this not remind you of the Olympic scandal? Pay to play. Pay to play. International. Uh, undisclosed, this undisclosed and illegal payments, kickbacks, and bribes became a way of doing business for FIFA, said sure. FBI Director James Comey. F, uh, FIFA President Step Blatter, who is heading into an election on Friday to seek his fifth term yeah. as the head of FIFA, he is not among job. those charged. At a press conference Wednesday, representatives for the soccer body insisted that it's only looking forward. This is good for this is uh, for FIFA. This is good. It's not good in terms of image or reputation, but in terms of cleaning up. This is good. It's not a nice day, but it's all. But it is a good day. It's a good to day. Make us better. Fourteen people, but it's a good day. You know, because if you just think of who who are the the recent recipients of the FIFA tournaments, Russia and Qatar. That's the next two. The next two, Russia and Qatar, Qatar, so which are two that a lot of people are like, why? Yeah. Especially why? Well, Qatar, Qatar, however you yeah, pronounce. Yeah, you, but you've got it's hot. It's 120 in the in the in the in they're yeah. they're going to play those games in December. Well, and they, trying to get it to where it's maybe 90 degrees outside. Plus the history and the ties to alleged terrorism, terrorism. and human rights and yeah. all kinds of says the uh a spokesman for fifa says they will not revote on russia or qatar we're not revoting swiss authorities have opened their own criminal inquiry into the fifa's 2018 and 2022 cup votes which were for russia and qatar right they're not associated with the the u.s department of justice investigation the swiss prosecutors say that they had seized electronic data and documents from fifa's Swiss World Headquarters, and we'll question 10 members of the soccer's governing body. Executive Committee took part in the controversial votes for the 18 and 22. Does it say why the United States is doing this? I don't know. Because didn't we just lose an, Didn't we just lose a shot at, fi, at the FIFA tournament? Yeah, and it's in Switzerland, and apparently they're doing their own uh-huh. inquiries. So I don't know why we're involved, involved but the FBI is huh. involved. So, Well, there goes soccer. Fun times. Right when it was starting to get hold. Um, at least 11 people are dead, four of them in Houston, 13 are missing, and heavy rains and floods swept uh, through Texas back. Yeah. over the weekend. Some 350 homes have been destroyed. That 1,000 residents are now homeless. Houston officials said the number of damaged homes could reach up to 4,000. Wow. A 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. curfew has been imposed in San Marcos and Wimberley while rescue workers search the area for people. Seven people in Oklahoma have died during severe flooding and storms since Friday, according it's to It's supposed to be raining another three inches yes. this morning. More rain today for them. Oh, man. Well. My my cousin lives in the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area near uh, Six Flags. Yeah. And they have a massive roller coaster, and wherever the roller coaster dips, it's underwater. <laughs> That's a fun <laughs> ride, though. <laughs> really? Yeah. Texas is just being inundated yeah just noah get the ark build an ark crazy bernie sanders yes senator bernie Sa- sanders officially <laughs> kicked off his presidential campaign here's some audio from oh his, good his wonderful press conference today here in our small state a state that has led this nation in so many ways i am proud to announce my candidacy for president of the united states listen to that crowd they love Bernie. First off, he has a YouTube site. He does. Yeah, it has one video. <laughs> it's this video. 
It's one hour, 17 minutes long. Yeah. No one bothered to edit the video. Oh, why? There's 10 minutes of some guy in a microphone going, test, test one, one, two, one, two. Zach, you sound <laughs> good back there? All right. All right. Let's go on. But, you know, so they're testing the audio. Like, edit something, Bernie. Get come it up on. there, Bernie. Bernie was so we, excited. We understand you're just there. doing this for a matter of policy and a matter of going through the motions almost. But, you know, make it look like you're trying. See, but look at how great that is. He's a guy that just doesn't care. He cares about running, but he doesn't care how it looks. Yeah. I don't know. So he's Boy, out the, there. The people were crazy for Bernie. He, he's pushing kind of the, the, the to the billionaire class. I say your greed has got to end. This great nation and its government belong to all the people and not to a handful of billionaires. So comments like that. Ooh, he, that was right at Hillary. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Sanders currently trails behind Clinton by around 50% in most polls. He's got nothing to lose. He can just go out and take you know shots. Take, and she's got to deal with it. He can take some big swings and not have to worry about it. Well, that's cool. He's not actually thinking. He's I'm glad Bernie's in because it looks like a bunch of Republicans are getting locked and loaded. Um, where did that one go? They're all coming in, aren't they? You got your uh, who? Who is it? It's going to be uh, Perry's going to be coming in. They think this week. Oh, George Pataki. Pataki, New Today, York governor. They're thinking on uh, Thursday he will launch his presidential campaign. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Sometimes it's like. I heard someone yesterday say the clown car is full. So how are you just going to keep piling people in? It's a double-decker. At some point, you know you're going to get pushed off the stage. We've already seen That's that right. Fox News Somebody's is going is to gonna use a, a, you know, all the, whatever the top 10 polls, and you have to average be in the top 10 yeah. of, those, of those polls to be able to make it to the stage for the debates. So at some point, if you're not making it to the, you know, the forefront to be on TV, it doesn't matter. Somebody's going to have to sit at the little kid table. Which, you know, Thanksgiving is just, it's always the worst place to sit, especially when you're a grown-up. Uh, James is shaking his head in the affirmative. I don't know. I don't know. All, these, all these people. We'll just watch them declare. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing about our, our process is that all these people can get in. We get this diversity of ideas. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, okay, there's only so many people who have a shot. Well, the sad thing is there really, there's not a whole lot of diversity of ideas. Well, no. I said that's kind of the hope. That's I mean, the idea. If there but... was a diversity of ideas, that would be fantastic. Yeah, there's kind of one idea sometimes. Rand Paul on Wednesday said it was the Republican hawks like John McCain and Lindsey Graham who helped give rise to ISIS. ISIS wow. exists and grew stronger because of the hawks in our party who gave them arms, arms indiscriminately, and most of those arms were snatched up by ISIS. Well, and. Every time we keep losing a city, yeah. we give up another and 50 says, cars. These hawks also want to bomb Assad in Syria, yeah. which would have made ISIS's job even easier because they're trying to take Syria. They created these people. ISIS is all over Libya because these same hawks in my party loved Hillary Clinton's war in Libya. They just wanted more of it. Uh, Paul said that both Lib- huh. Libya and Iraq are false or failed states susceptible to ISIS as a result of U.S. intervention. So he's setting himself up as the dove against Hillary. And does he know that McCain's not running? Yeah, but he's out there in the media saying we need 10,000 troops on the ground and we need to go yeah. and confront them head on. Well, sure. So is Lindsey Graham. Yeah. So that's kind of why he pulls them in, too. He was in, it was an MSNBC interview, and I think he was responding to those comments from McCain that we need okay. 10,000 troops on the ground. Rand Paul. This is interesting. It's getting crazy. Wow. Uh, okay. This is just the beginning, folks. Just the beginning. Hey, I'm excited for our next guest. Uh, we've talked about Ferguson a lot. 
We've talked about Baltimore and what's going on there. And it's just really easy for everybody to just kind of blame. Come on, pull yourself out of the, you know, the slums. Just quit complaining and go change your life. Well, would you believe that the government policies over the last, I don't know, 60 years may have actually created a segregated community. It may have actually quarantined many populations, especially black populations, to certain isolated slums. Do you believe that? Our next guest, Richard uh, Rothstein, is going to be joining us. He is uh, a research associate of the, at the Economic Policy Institute And uh, he's going to be joining us to talk about residential segregation, back to the concept of ghettos. Interesting, interesting discussion coming up. Stick with us, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for decades, we've seen countless outbursts of violence and riots in response to civil injustice in many uh, cities across the United States. So what is the real problem behind the unrest? In light of recent events in Baltimore, Richard Rothstein, a research associate of the Economic Policy Institute, he writes that Baltimore is the legacy of a century of federal, state, and local policies designed to quarantine Baltimore's black population in isolated slums. He's with us today to give us a better history of the government's role in the creation of ghettos, the issue we are seeing today, and what can be done to reverse some of these problems. Again, Richard Rothstein. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning. How are you, Richard? Fine, thanks. I uh, I really am interested, very interested in uh, some of your writings because, you know, we see what goes on in Ferguson, and I think most of the most of the country, we just kind of chalk it up to, you know, just people that, you know, they're uneducated, they don't have money, they're not getting it. We don't get the complexity of what's going on in our inner cities. And I needed somebody to help enlighten us. So help us understand, you actually use the word ghetto, um, which in your world of, uh, you know, economic policy, the, the term ghetto, actually, it has a very real definition that you use. I mean, t- talk to us about why you call it a ghetto. Well, a ghetto is an area which is homogenous ethnically or racially, and where there are barriers to exit. Uh, we have no problem using the term ghetto when we think of uh, Eastern European Jewish ghettos, right. where Jews were concentrated and couldn't live elsewhere. We sanitize our language when we talk about uh, the United States and forget that uh, areas of African-American concentration in inner cities were deliberate creations of public policy uh, throughout the 20th century state, local, and federal policies conspired explicitly with racial motivation 
to separate white and black populations, to overcrowd black populations in inner cities, and to suburbanize the white population. And this was all racially explicit public policy. We have a myth that uh, we have something called de facto segregation, which is the accident of private prejudice or people's preferences of where to live, or as you say, people don't know any better, don't have enough income. That's all a myth. The the ghettos that we have today, that continue today, of low-income African-American populations were created explicitly by federal, state, and local policy. In both both um, St. Louis, um, where Ferguson is located, and Baltimore, in the early 20th century, both of them adopted ordinances prohibited Afri- prohibiting African Americans from moving uh, into white neighborhoods. And when those ordinances were banned by the Supreme Court, both cities developed policies to preserve the intent of the ordinances. In St. Louis, they have a zoning commission that zoned any neighborhood where white families had restrictive deeds that prohibited resale to African Americans. Those neighborhoods were protectively zoned, so Mm. nothing but single-family homes could be built in them. In neighborhoods where black families lived, they were zoned uh, to permit uh, saloons and and, uh, factories that polluted and uh, other businesses, multifamily dwellings, uh, creating those neighborhoods as slums. In um, Baltimore, uh, the city created something called the Committee on Segregation, and housing and building inspectors were instructed to harass any black uh, homeowners who moved into white neighborhoods and hmm. eventually uh, condemn those residences. Uh, the Committee on Segregation organized homeowners associations uh, in white neighborhoods around the city to enact uh, what were called restrictive covenants. There's pacts among homeowners agreeing not to sell to African Americans and giving each homeowner in the association the right to enforce that pact against all the others. Then the federal government stepped in in the 1930s uh, when uh, there was a civilian housing shortage and also the federal government was trying to create jobs with the Public Works Administration. The first civilian housing, uh, public housing projects were built on a segregated basis by the federal government. And many urban neighborhoods at that time uh, initially were somewhat integrated because both blacks and whites, typically European immigrants, had to live close to the factories where they walked to work. So these were integrated neighborhoods. Um, The federal uh, housing program, beginning in the 1930s, segregated those neighborhoods by raising... Uh, there's already Z-I-N-G, yeah, right. destroying those <laughs> integrated neighborhoods, and uh, uh, building public housing that was segregated. In St. Louis, a uh, neighborhood like that was uh, destroyed, and instead a, on the north side of St. Louis, and a housing project for blacks only was constructed. On the south side, a similar neighborhood was destroyed, and a public housing project for whites only oh, wow. was constructed. Then, uh, in, during World War II, uh, around the country, um, the, the federal government built housing for defense workers uh, near defense plants. Uh, many cities uh, attracted large numbers of African-American migrants to work in defense plants. All that housing that the federal government built was segregated. Um, in one uh, unusual case, San Francisco tried to build an integrated project, and uh, the Navy prohibited it from doing so because it said that an integrated project would be bad for worker morale in its defense plants. 
Unbelievable. Public housing project though segregated uh, those neighborhoods. So, so uh, they, they would have naturally integrated, and they were naturally integrating, except for government policies. It was a combination. I, I, I certainly wouldn't suggest that private prejudice didn't play some role. Right. But, uh, without public policy, we would have had, as you say, integration. And public uh, public housing was not the the least of it. Um, once. Uh, the civilian housing shortage began to ease um, in the 1950s uh, and the 1940s uh, after World War II. Uh, the federal government, through the Federal Housing Administration, uh, guaranteed bank loans to builders to build uh, mass production suburbs, subdivisions in the suburbs. And the Federal Housing Administration placed an addition, a condition on these bank guarantees that no homes be sold to African Americans. Uh, your, your listeners are probably Why? familiar with um, uh, Levittown in New York. Yeah, it's probably yeah. the most well-known of those. That was a development of 17,000 homes um, financed by the federal government on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans. No, no, why? Help so, us with that, Richard. Why would the federal government discriminate specifically against African Americans buying homes in Levittown? Well, we have a history of racial policy in this country. Unbelievable. We've forgotten it. It's, yeah. Um, it's consistent with what has gone on throughout American history. Part of it was that um, the New Deal and uh, Harry Truman's Fair Deal uh, were uh, supported was by a coalition of Southern and Northern Democrats. And in order to enact uh, uh, economic policies for the white working class, uh, the New Deal made an uh, agreement that uh, they would be segregated. In 1949, I'll give you an, an example of this. In 1949, President Harry Truman proposed a National Housing Act to vastly expand the public housing in this country. At that time, there was still a big civilian housing shortage. It hadn't eased. And most of the public housing was going to be for whites who couldn't find housing, returning war veterans who couldn't find housing uh, in the civilian market. Uh, he proposed this um, vastly expanded public housing effort Conservative Republicans, who, who not for racial reasons, but because they opposed any uh, public intervention in the private housing market, uh, developed an amendment that they uh, tried to attach to the bill. Uh, it's called a poison pill amendment, an amendment designed <laughs> to kill the to deal, the entire bill if the amendment was passed. Yeah, the Republicans' amendment required that all public housing be integrated. Northern liberals, led by people like Senator Hubert Humphrey campaigned against the integration amendment Holy cow. because they knew that if the integration amendment was passed, no public housing would be able to be adopted because Southern Democrats would then join with Republicans to defeat public housing. So the integration amendment was defeated. The 1949 Housing Act was adopted without the integration amendment. Segregated housing, public housing would continue, and both Northern and Southern Democrats then united to adopt the public housing bill program as a segregated program. Holy cow. And this is the history, Richard, that we just apparently have all forgotten. We have forgotten it, and it used to be well-known. This is a, not something that the, I'm 
I've discovered, or yeah. other scholars now have discovered, this used to be well known, and um, we've suppressed this memory in order to convince ourselves that we have no responsibility for the kinds of events that happen in uh, Ferguson or Saint or, or Baltimore or Cleveland or any of these other places. But one of your goals you know, is to say I, we've got to change. We've got to not sanitize it anymore. We've got to be honest to what's happened in our history if we want to fix it. Well, we have to not be honest about it, because unless we recognize how this happened, we're not going to be able to develop policies to reverse it. Right. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I mentioned before Levittown, which is yeah. kind of the, the iconic uh, suburban subdivision that was created by the federal government on a segregated basis. When those homes were built in um, the late 1940s, they sold for about seven, dollars $8,000 a piece, which was roughly equivalent in today's dollars to about $125,000. For returning war veterans and and other working class um, uh, whites, that was uh, equivalent to about two, two and a half times national median income. Hmm. Today, those homes in Levittown sell for $500,000. Oh, my heavens. About seven times national median income. Yeah. We passed a law in 1968 called the Fair Housing Act, which effectively tells African Americans, okay, you're now allowed to live in places like Levittown or in suburbs like it around the country that was similarly built. But telling people, uh, working class, lower middle class families, that they are now permitted to live in places that where homes sell for seven times national median income is not a very meaningful right. Yeah, it's useless. They could yeah. have bought into those homes uh, 60 years ago when they were affordable to working and middle-class families. And that policy has never been addressed. Mm. And that also, I guess, too, allowed uh, white Americans to um, aggregate uh, assets and become wealthier than the average black American today because they didn't have the real estate increase. Yeah, interesting. Correct. As I mentioned, the the homes in in uh, places like Levittown and suburbs of St. Louis uh, and uh, Baltimore and every other city in the country that sold for about one hundred twenty five thousand uh, dollars sixty years ago. Yeah. Uh, now sell for five hundred thousand uh, dollars. That difference. Uh, is equity appreciation. Sure. Uh, maybe not all of it. They, uh, the families who live there might have uh, invested in remodeling or expanding their homes, but a good part of it is equity appreciation. That's wealth. And those families uh, uh, bequeathed that equity to their children, their grandchildren. They sent their children to college. Um, today, nationwide, African-American family incomes, incomes, that's what they earn uh, from working, is about 60% of white family incomes. Mm. But African-American wealth, which is primarily in this country, wealth is primarily the equity that people have in their homes. African-American wealth is 5% of white family wealth. And that difference between 60% of income and 5% of wealth is almost entirely attributable to federal racially motivated housing policy. Unbelievable. And then we see Ferguson blow up and erupt, and we think it's just you know, a police crisis. Mm-hmm. And yet it's that we hear all the stories that they don't feel like they have an opportunity. They don't know how to get out of these situations. Again, we're talking with Richard Rothstein. Um, 
And we're going to come back, have more of a discussion on this. He's with the Economic Policy Institute and uh, also, by the way, a senior fellow and chief uh, of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. More with Richard Rothstein when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you can, uh, you got to unravel. If you want to understand Ferguson, you got to unravel the entire story. There's so much more going on in our inner cities than just what we see in the policing problems. There's a lot of people that are trapped, that financially they can't make progress. They don't make enough money to get out of the ghettos, um, and yet uh, they can't go anywhere else. They don't necessarily have the ability to just go to school, to just go get a job and to go make the difference. Today we're talking with Richard Rothstein. He is a research associate of the Economic Policy Institute and a senior fellow of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Again, Richard Rothstein, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you there, Richard? Yes, I'm. Oh, good. There you go. I can hear you now. Yep. So teach us some more. I mean, the history, as as you're saying, this goes back to the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, where, I mean, really, up to today, we've been creating policy. And then eventually, though, uh, the, the policies would be seen as... As, as discriminatory, right? And the courts would overturn them. But then it seemed like what would happen when the court started overturning the government policies that were racist, then it just seemed like we, we kind of, then the businesses just took over. Talk a little bit about, I mean, there was, there was unfair loan practices going on. There was also real estate uh, blockbusting going on. Teach us about those problems that also created and contributed to this to the inner city slums well you're right and and uh, let me respond to, to both things you said it's true that the government eventually abandoned its racially uh, explicit policies but the patterns were set in place and what we've never done is remedied those policies if you create these ghettos and then suddenly say to people, as I explained before, that you're now free to move out uh, <laughs> when it's no longer economically possible to move out, simply ending the policy does no good. You're still stuck. You mentioned real estate agents and blockbusting. That's um, certainly part of it. But you have to remember that these real estate agents, real estate is probably the most heavily regulated industry in the country. True. Uh, state regulatory agencies that supervise real estate agents that were discriminating against black home buyers and uh, engaging in blockbusting, as you mentioned uh, a minute ago. The state regulatory agencies were fully complicit in these in these practices. In fact, in, in some cases, they explicitly found uh, it to be unethical for real estate agents to sell homes in a white suburban neighborhood to a black family. Hmm. 
This was a code of the National Real Estate Association that uh, considered this unethical practice, and it was adopted by state regulatory agencies and enforcement. Never in this entire history was a real estate agent disciplined by a state regulatory agency for racial discrimination, although real estate agents are disciplined routinely for all kinds sure, of things today. that are uh, you know, not not properly handling an escrow fund, even for private uh, behavior, right. uh, but not for racial discrimination. The um, uh, banks which redlined uh, 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 neighborhoods, that is, uh, refused to give loans to African Americans, even in black neighborhoods, not only refusing to give loans for white neighborhoods, they were using maps that were created by the federal government and that their policies were enforced by the Federal Housing Administration. Yeah. The redlining term comes from maps that were created by the federal government in the 1930s, where any neighborhood that either had African Americans living in it or even had African Americans living near it was colored red as a signal that these were not good credit risks and the uh, oh, wow. loans should be made to them. Yeah. So what you had was a situation where... where African Americans in the mid through the mid 20th century were prohibited from living anywhere except tightly controlled uh, inner city neighborhoods. They were overcrowded because there was so little housing that was open to African Americans. As a result of being overcrowded, the supply was small relative to demand, and African Americans were paying rents that were much higher than whites were paying for similar housing oh, elsewhere. So, yeah. so their incomes were effectively lower. Uh, they had to double up. They, uh, if they owned homes in those neighborhoods, they subdivided them. Uh, the cities uh, began to uh, deliver less adequate services. Garbage in collections weren't increased as density in the neighborhood increased. So these places turned into slums. And once they turned into slums, then the government said uh, they did no longer needed a racial, explicit racial purpose. They said, now we're going to do slum clearance. Yeah. And these neighborhoods were destroyed, and African-Americans were pushed out into other ghettos. And that's how Ferguson got created. When uh, African-Americans were concentrated in the downtown St. Louis neighborhoods that were overcrowded, that weren't well-served by public services, where there were no jobs and people's incomes, uh, as jobs moved to the suburbs and people's incomes uh, decreased, um, the city and state governments agreed to... Uh, raise those neighborhoods in order to create, a, for example, in St. Louis, they created the Gateway Arch. That's famous as a yeah. famous symbol of St. Louis now. They created uh, highway interchanges in those neighborhoods to bring white suburbanites to downtown jobs. Uh, they created uh, university expansion uh, campuses in those neighborhoods, all formerly African-American neighborhoods. Well, the displaced residents had to go somewhere. And they were not uh, allowed uh, to buy into uh, most suburbs around St. Louis. Only those closest to the black ghetto uh, were eventually uh, broken into by, by African Americans. And that's how Ferguson exactly. came to be an all African American neighborhood uh, community, or almost all African American community. It once was all white. Yeah, in fact, it was any white neighborhood. But the, the slum clearance, the urban renewal in downtown St. Louis. Uh, pushed African-Americans into new ghettos in places like Ferguson. You keep talking, Richard, about the fact that we have to change 
we have to, I guess, A, quit sanitizing and start telling the real story and then learn from it and go change. What are some changes you would recommend? What are, how do we go forward from this without creating more problems? It seems like every time the government is getting involved, a lot of times it's making it just worse. So how do we, how do we get involved and, and correct it without, you know, over time making the system even worse? Well, I don't know that the government always makes things worse. It's certainly no policy is perfect. Right. There's certainly unintended consequences. But I don't know that the, the policies to remedy this would make it worse than the policies that uh, created it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing, and I want to emphasize this because I, 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 it's very, very important. Unless the public becomes familiar with this history and recognizes that these ghettos are not the accident of um, unintended policies, but are explicitly explicit violations of our Constitution. There won't be any political support to enact policies to remedy it. That's true. So uh, that's the first step. The first step is we have to re-educate ourselves about this history, stop sanitizing it. I, I examined the uh, American history textbooks commonly used in public schools around the country. There isn't a single... American history textbook for American high schools that mentions in any way the role of the government in creating segregation. It's treated in, in American history textbooks as accidents, as yeah. something that is completely unexplained. White flight, right? Changed. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, white flight. Uh, of course there's white flight. You know, once you create <laughs> slums uh, in, uh, by, by explicit racial policy, white families come to consider black families as slum dwellers. Right. And they think that when blacks move into their neighbors, they're going to bring slum characteristics with them because they think that uh, black that slum characteristics are characteristics of the families, not of the government policy. So we have to educate ourselves, and until we do so, there won't be support for policies. But there are lots of things we can do short-term that are modest. They won't remedy the, the underlying conditions, but they are modest policies. Uh, I'll give you two. Uh, the federal government currently has two major policies in the area of housing. One is a program run by the Treasury Department, which um, gives tax credits to developers of, uh, of units of developments where they set aside some units for moderate income housing, low and moderate income housing. Those tax credits are disproportionately used in already segregated low income minority neighborhoods. Hmm. The federal government should prohibit that kind of use because it perpetuates and reinforces segregation. Uh, The second policy is one that uh, gives low-income families uh, vouchers to supplement their rent payments so that they can afford to rent apartments at market rates uh, in in the broader community. But again, those vouchers, they're commonly known as Section 8 vouchers, are used disproportionately in already segregated low-income minority neighborhoods. We should prohibit that kind of use. We should require Section 8 vouchers to be accepted in all, all communities. Yeah. And give, um, yes, in all communities and suburbs and, and give uh, Section 8 voucher holders incentives to move to high opportunity neighborhoods. Well, because minorities so would. Short-term things. Wouldn't they? They would just naturally move to better schools for their kids, to places closer to work and, and other things. I mean, a lot of the jobs are no longer in the inner city. Right. They're they're now in other places. And so it seems like by even just promoting the Section 8 vouchers not being able to be used in inner city situations as much or, you know, limiting that, that in and of itself would move people out. That's great. 
Well, it would. It, people would need support. They would need social supports. They would need uh, transportation options. Uh, it's not simply a case of uh, a lot of services would have to be provided to make this policy work, but it could be made to work. There are examples of, of a few places in the country where it has been made to work. What are some examples of the healthy places that are working? Well, Baltimore actually does have a program. It's, it's very limited, so it hasn't uh, undone the, the ghetto conditions that we saw recently that, that erupted in, in the kind of uh, violence that we saw. But Baltimore does have a housing mobility program in which Section 8 voucher holders are given the option of moving to high-opportunity neighborhoods and given social supports as well to, um, to do so. Uh, that's one example. Uh, another example is uh, Montgomery County outside Washington, D.C., where uh, uh, public uh, subsidized housing um, is created in, in uh, all of the suburbs uh, in Montgomery County and within each subsidized development. Mm. Um, the uh, public housing authority buys a certain percentage of a small percentage of the units so that every suburb in Montgomery County now has some moderate income, low income, and, and frequently predominantly uh, black residents. So it's beginning to integrate. But these examples are very, very few, and the federal government has not taken the lead in, in uh, requiring or even encouraging such uh, efforts. Is that um, part of what you're trying to do at the Economic Policy Institute, is, is educate, but also you know, motivate the federal government to, to, do, to look at this differently? Well, yes, of course, but as I, I keep on emphasizing, the federal government responds to political to the people, will, yeah, and we do not have the political will in this country now to enact such policies. So while we do and, and other organizations do encourage the federal government to adopt such policies, we're realistic in understanding that unless there's more public understanding of the need for them, uh, it's unlikely that the federal government will act appropriately. Mm. What um, just as we wrap this up, Richard, uh, to educate? I mean, uh, to me, when I heard this on NPR, I was. Hello. I, can you hear me, Richard? Yes. I, okay. I, are I'm you there? Just, That's okay. Yeah. When I first heard this and your your article and your interviews and started then listening and reading a lot of what you're you're talking about, it's it's very new to me, and I feel like I'm fairly well read, but pretty probably you know white America, but. We we really um, I, I guess until until we keep telling the stories as you're saying we we're just not going to get it. Where could people go to get more information on this and and understand it without kind of a taint of a, a biased partisan view? Well, if you go to my website, which is at www.epi.org, that's EPI for the Economic Policy Institute. On that website, there's a page for me. If you go to the experts bar and scroll down to my name, you'll find dozens of articles describing different aspects of this history, and each of them is well documented with source citations and books to read and articles to read that document the, the facts that I've been describing. Nothing that I've said is undocumented. Yeah on that website, and your listeners can go there and, and read this for themselves and draw their own conclusions about the history. Well, and I, I, I seriously challenge them to do that, Richard, because this is – I get more and more frustrated watching everybody 
all the partisans talk about Ferguson and yet the issues are so much bigger than what we are making them and it's institutionalized. It's permanent and if we're not going to change the discussion, I totally agree with you. We're not going to change the outcome. Richard Rothstein, again, go to his website, www.epi.org. EPI.org stands for Economic Policy Institute. He's uh, out of the uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Law and Social Policy at the University of Cal Berkeley School of Law. Appreciate you, Richard. Thanks for the insight. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, uh, do just a quick summary wrap-up. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting, interesting interview, huh? With uh, Richard Rothstein. When you think about it, you know, I'm not sure most of us even know if we're a racist. Because we just, we don't get it. We don't, we don't understand really what's going on. And we might, as we've talked about on the show a lot... We might just take an automatically partisan view. So when you see what's going on in Ferguson, we tend to just think automatically, yeah, well, you know, they can pull themselves out of the slums if they want to. But did you have any idea that federal government policy, state government policy, local government policy policy was so impacting and even segregating your populations? Did you even know that was going on? Did you even know that blacks have 60 percent of the income of whites? Did you know that? Did you know that they have five percent of the wealth that a white family does? Those two statistics don't happen unless there's a systemic issue or a systemic um, process pushing against a group of people. It's not just a race. It's we've systematically segregated. And then we're wondering why they can't pull themselves out. And then they're overcrowded in their cities. And because they're overcrowded, the cities have to do half as much as they might normally do. And that there's the creation of a slum. And we drive by him every day when we go into our cities. And we and then we don't understand when the inner cities blow up and everybody's mad and fighting against police in every community. This is going on. So let's be real about it. Let's just quit pretending like this is a police issue in Ferguson. This is a much bigger issue. And then as you look at all these candidates lining up, do you hear anybody talking about this? And if they did, would you even tolerate the talk about it? Because, again, like Richard was saying, if, we're, if we don't even know what the real history is, we may not know that this has been going on forever. We didn't necessarily know that, you know, certain construction companies were being incentivized to go build high-volume inner-city slums with a lot of people. And making a lot of money to go build these in small locations in inner city. 
Did you know that you were you couldn't be a white person living in a black project or a black person living in a white project? Did you even know that was going on? And yet we sit there and we look at Ferguson like, oh, they're just out of control or Baltimore. It's the reason why it's so heated and the reason why it's so intense is because the system is complex. And if you've been stuck and your family's been stuck institutionally, basically, in a ghetto, by definition, according to Richard Rothstein, you're trapped. And then the cops keep arresting you and then more of you keep going to jail. And then the drug war, which disproportionately affects your communities. It's complicated, isn't it? So let's just wake up, all of us, and start researching it. Go to the website, www.epi.org. Just start learning. It's not going to make you a crazy liberal. It's just going to inform us. Let's start informing each other, and then let's start making some differences. That's what we're trying to do on the show is just give you the tools, for heaven's sakes. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break, come back, do some more headlines. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. That's my Oprah wow. vibrato. I don't know you could reach that note. Oh, yeah. Every morning, I like to pump it up like that because it just gets me so excited. Man, that first hour lit me up. We got to be more informed. That's the goal of this show. You know how long I've been saying, so what's really going on with Ferguson? What's really going on? Remember, the solutions are much more complicated than what you're going to find on the average, you know, three-minute story on one of the top networks. It's more complicated, folks. Welcome to the show. Have we got a great program for you today? Do you believe that uh, when you look at your kids and you, you look at their cute little bodies, would you say, do you think you're a good judge of how healthy they are? Mm, depends on the day. Depends on the day. My wife has convinced my kids pale because he doesn't eat his vegetables. Really? I keep telling her to chill out. I think it might have something okay. to do with the sun. <laughs> that too. He's inside a lot. <laughs> you might want to take him outside more. Okay. Now that the summer's here, you'll take him out. He'll get a nice – he'll get sun-kissed. Or burnt, whichever. He'll get fried. But uh, according to some new studies that we're going to be talking about uh, today, parents can't necessarily tell. They're not good uh, – what's the word? Judges of if their child is obese or not. Ninety-five percent or more of parents who have obese children think, ah, they're right where they should be. Right. Isn't that interesting? Like, I was convinced I had a weight problem as a kid, and I did. And you did. I you was knew big. you did. Oh, absolutely. Did you, but your mom's like, ah, oh, he's just pleasantly he's plump. Bo- he's big bone. <laughs> You're just a bigger guy than the other guys. It's okay. Oh, that is. My sisters used to say, Matt, it's not fair. You got the little bones, and we got the big bones. And then I'd grab their wrists, and I'm like... I don't think it has anything to do with the bones. Now, my parents' argument, because my dad didn't really say anything. I don't know if my he dad stayed really out of paid it. attention much. My wife, my mom had her saying, you're big bone. Then I go to the doctor <laughs> to get a physical, 
and he grabs my leg because I was having a knee issue, and he yeah. goes, "This is huge. Dude. Your legs are huge." But he, he wasn't like grabbing like 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 the skin, or he's grabbing like the bones, trying to see where my knee was. Yeah, like, this is a huge knee, and so did you have big knee? Yeah, bones? I have, a, I have a, a large skeleton, apparently. Yeah, it's the oldest cop out. Yeah, I was like, "What are we talking no, about here?" You like I going was, to to Wendy's and McDonald's? Ninth grade, three hundred pounds. Were you really? I had a weight problem. Yep. See, look at you now. You are just svelte. You're you've lost two hundred and twenty pounds. Uh, I was. My wife and I were talking about insults that people have. Uh-huh. I get told that I carry my weight well. Well, you what weight? Yeah, exactly. You're well, in when shape. people find out what I weigh, they're like, "You you carry your weight well." That's kind of like you're saying I'm fat, but I hide it well. That's, Boy, you hide I, your fat incredibly well. But <laughs> you just have rude. a lot what of you what you have is bone density, right? So you don't have fat. Yours is all bone density. You've got some seriously heavy in, bones. In, unless you look at the BMI scale. From I government. hate that. That is another government I, scam. I should be dead. If the BMI was being run by FIFA, right, they'd be indicted right now. Because you just pay them off, and uh-huh. then the Swiss would come in and arrest them, and they'd ship them back to the right. U.S. and the Body FBI. Body mass would... index. Ugh. So, yeah, FIFA. So we'll be talking about uh, that study coming up with Dr. Dustin Duncan a little bit later. Um, but uh, we've got some headlines. FIFA's in trouble. FIFA's in trouble. Members of FIFA, not all, not of, all FIFA. of FIFA. There are, but, I mean, 20 years, they said they went back and looked through and saw a bunch of payoffs and bribes and all kinds of financial dealings. And so they arrested 10 members of, of FIFA, the governing body of soccer. This is the U.S. Olympics all over again. The Swiss are now looking into the bid process for that Russia and uh, Qatar, Qatar. Qatar. It's got a Q, so it's hard to figure out how to pronounce it. Yeah. But it's the over uh, Arabian Peninsula, that area of the world, and they're going to have a soccer tournament. They've had to move it to December because it's 120 degrees in the shade when you <laughs> normally play soccer. Yeah. So what, in, uh, what, 2022, it'll be a week before Christmas, and we'll still have the Soccer World Cup on, which is usually a summer event. Interesting. Because they're adjusting for the weather. See, but and we lived here in Utah through the uh, the Olympic scandal. Yes. And that was the whole Mitt Romney went in and saved the day. But basically some of the same allegations, kind of racketeering, bribery, you, you bring, pay for you, play. You bring your people over that make decisions and you give them gifts. And honestly, and getting caught and having all that go down improved the system. Maybe. So – it improved it a little bit. In the United States. Yeah. In other countries, it probably still happens well, because they don't necessarily have the kind of rules that, that the, we try to But this to is the interesting thing is – but so it's interesting because the United States government, our Justice Department, are the ones that are leading this investigation now. Which I don't understand why. They were arrested well, I think it's because we just lost the bid. Is that what it is? I don't know. Are, we, are, some are we chasing them down for the corruption? I'm not sure. But in the end, uh, you know – I'm not sure. The rest of the world play – they all play by different rules. Yes. Different rules of business, different rules yeah, of I mean, government. And sometimes just, you know – Some things are accepted. Throwing down some money to just get someone's attention normal and not to get arrested. I mean I was in Argentina. They'd ask, you know, so do you want to be arrested or do you want to just pay me? Yeah, just pay me now. We'll take care of this. And I'm like, well, I've only got 10, 10 Australis, which is like 38 cents. Whoa. So you want to go to jail. So I just give him that. That was it? Passe. Go ahead. Okay. All right.
just happens that's your lucky day. That's how much the fine is. That's all it's going to cost today. So who knows? Who knows? In other news, yeah, thieves using the IRS's own online service got access to information on more than 100,000 taxpayers, oh, the agency boy. announced on Tuesday. The thieves accessed a system called Get Transcript, where taxpayers can get, a ta- get tax returns and other filings from previous years. Oh, wow. They're able to get through there and got all the information from one, over 100,000 taxpayers. So they'll get your th- that's a bunch of social security numbers. You'll find out, uh, you know, how much how many deductions I took. They, they can uh, file they can file false returns so they can get your refund. Oh, and just have it redirected to their account. Yeah. So stuff like just fraud to get more money. And, will they pay for my taxes if I'm not getting no. a refund? But I owe. Will they pay for that? I don't believe so. They're just going after your refund. But not maybe they'll your make debt. a mistake and end up paying for it. Maybe. Doubt it. As part of a settlement with the Justice Department, the Cleveland Police Department agreed Tuesday to some of the country's most stringent standards governing the use of force by police. Cleveland officers are now prohibited from using force against suspects for talking back or running away. Firing warning shots and pistol whipping are no longer allowed. Well, were they ever allowed? <laughs> yes. You could, you used to be able to fire a warning shot? Uh, they're, they're now saying you can't, so well, I'm going to go say maybe. That's when you were on horseback. I don't know. I just reading along. I'm like pistol whipping. You could smack people with the barrel of your gun, and that was seen as proper policing behavior. I mean, it wasn't ideal. Let's be real, but it worked like crazy. So it says a fundamental goal of the revised use of force policy will be to account for, review, and investigate every reportable use of force. The agreement states the Justice Department sued Cleveland last year for violating resident civil rights, and the the uh, consent deal comes just after a jury acquitted a police officer of murder for murder for shooting two people in a stopped car. Wow. He stood on the hood of the car, fired 15 shots through the windshield. They didn't have a gun, right? I think at one point he may have reloaded, mm-hmm. but at the end of it all, with all the other police officers around, there were something like 137 bullets put in the car. Holy cow. It's just they went nuts, and everyone's acquitted because they can't say who shot the final shot. Well, uh, see, progress is being made. Pistol whipping's gone. Warning shots. Warning shots, gone. Still not the problem, as you we discussed in the first you hour. You can't shoot from a moving car anymore. But that's, a, honestly, it's one of the hardest shots you can have. Right, but that was one of the, the stipulations. So how come the drive-by guys can shoot from a car? They're not police officers. Uh. I think we should all play by the same rules. And that, that stems from the, I believe it was a 12-year-old boy with a pellet uh, gun in a park. Yeah, and the cops that? drove up and just shot him out the window because he had a, a weapon of some kind. Instead of trying to figure out what the situation was, they just drove up and shot him. Right. And it's on, they have it on security cameras. So you can see <sighs> there was no, it was like ten, like a five-second situation and the kid was dead. And so they have to come in and now, now we gotta make police the Cleveland police to make sure that they... Uh, they do the job correctly. Hmm. And a story just for Matt. What? The Pope yeah. had an interview with an, a newspaper in Argentina. What? Revealed many things about the Pope he that we didn't necessarily know before. He is the Argentine Pope. Apparently, he wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning. Why? Without an alarm. Why? He Why? Just, he's old. <gasps> That's old it. Old people wake up. Prostate. Yeah. So he's tired midday. He loves taking uh, naps. A siesta, they call that in Argentina. Right. I love him. Loves the naps. He hasn't watched TV since 1990. Really? Yeah. There was some good TV on in 1990. <laughs> really? 
Hold on. I was in Argentina in 1990. He has not watched TV. He says he doesn't like the media, but he's, he's getting over that anxiety of talking to reporters. That's cool. But he doesn't watch TV. He takes he a lo- siesta. He has a favorite soccer team from Argentina, uh-huh, with- and he loves them, but he can't watch them because they're on TV. He's made a promise. He said he made a promise. Did to he the say ver- which the- one it is? Boca or River? It's uh, San Lorenzo. Wow. Maybe it's a newer one. Well, that's, they have a bunch of them. They're, but- well, they're, they're based in Buenos Aires. Okay. Uh, he hasn't watched them since, ni- since ni- 1990 due to a promise he made to the Virgin Mary that he would not watch TV. What a great guy. Yeah. He relies on a member of the Swiss Guard to give him weekly updates on his team's progress, and he loves pizza. He's my kind of guy. And he's mad. We've heard before he's mad that he can't go get pizza anymore yeah. because of his position. I love pizza. I love siestas. I haven't watched television since... This last weekend when you last watched Last weekend Netflix. when I binged. <laughs> That's probably not something you have in common. Yeah. We're kind of different there. What a great guy. So there you go. Naps, pizza... They call them siestas. Don't call it a nap. It's a nap. Don't trivialize it. <laughs> it's a siesta. Argentina is known for the siesta. The entire country shuts down. If you want to invade Argentina, you do it during the siesta. No one will even know for like two hours. That's cool. I'm trying to institutionalize or institute um, siestas for our team. Team naps? Not together. Oh. But at a certain time, 10 to 2. Okay. That'll work. I, I agree with that. And the kids love it. Good stuff. We're going to take a break, friends. When we come back, Dr. Dustin Duncan will be joining us. He is uh, one of the great researchers that's on this study we were talking about earlier about parents being able to actually recognize if their child is obese or not. You know what, folks? We're not very good at this. And if we can't recognize it, Again, you can't fix it. That seems to be the theme of today's shows. We'll take a break. More on uh, obesity and your children. Up next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show, uh, Don Shaline, the big boss, just came in, and apparently he's approved of the siesta. However, uh, the time he gave me is the siesta will go from uh, 10 o'clock to noon Eastern time, and I just reminded him that happens to be right in the middle of the show. So he's going to have to work on that. Bummer! We were so close. Hey, joining us on the phone uh, is Dr. Dustin Duncan. Now, if you think about it, chunky babies, folks, they're usually the subject of all the cooing and the, just the love of the parents just squeezing and kissing on them. But it's fairly normal to see a chubby baby and not think twice about it. And according to a study done by Dr. Dustin Duncan, uh, led by NYU Langone uh, Medical Center, partnering with research from Georgia Southern University and Fudan University in Shanghai, they found out that a large percentage of parents cannot see that their toddler is obese. They don't see it. They don't notice it. And so he's here today to talk to us about this study and its implications. Dr. Dustin Duncan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. It's such an interesting study, and uh, and yet I, I guess I get it. Parents think their kids can do no wrong, but in your study, you found that parents can't even notice, they don't even notice that their child is obese. That's correct. But I think it's, that's correct, and I think it's important to remember that these are young kids. Yeah. They, so yeah. Kids who are two to five, and I think it's even harder for, for parents of younger kids to identify their overweight status or obesity status of the kid. Hmm. So that's what our studies show. And other studies show that parents actually get better over time at identifying whether their kids are overweight and obese. You can imagine that perhaps parents may think that their kids may, quote-unquote, grow out of obesity. Yeah, when yeah. In fact, of course, science shows that obesity tends to follow someone throughout their life. So, of course, if you're an overweight child, you tend to be an overweight adolescent. An overweight adult, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. And so, it's you in your study. You actually took two samples of of children between one was between 1988 to 94, about 30, almost 4,000 children from that, and the other was from 2000 to 2012. That was about 31, 3,200 uh, children. And what did you see in the study? What was the data showing? So we found two major things, um, but first, let me just highlight that. In research, what you can do is you can have community-based samples, which essentially means it's not representative of any particular population. Mm -hmm. So I live in New York City, and let's say I go to one small neighborhood in New York, and I give people a survey and and maybe do some clinical measurements. So, for example, measure their height and weight. And when I get results from that study, it may be representative of that community or it may not be. But in this case, what we did is we had nationally representative data. That means it was data from the CDC that reflects the conditions of every child, essentially, in the United States using uh, specific sampling criteria. Hmm. So in our nationally representative study, what we found is that the vast majority of parents perceived that their child was about the right weight. More specifically, we found that 95% of parents identified their overweight child as about the right weight. And perhaps what was most striking is we found that parents, there was a declining tendency of parents to perceive their overweight and obese child as um, overweight. In other words, they found it was harder over time to identify, to correctly identify, the overweight child as overweight. Hmm. Why is that? Is it is it because they don't they don't have anything to compare it to? Are they comparing it to other children? I mean, is it yeah. at that age they're just cute and plump anyway? Why is it? Or are they are the parents just naive, or are they self selecting their data? So there's a. So in our study, we didn't examine that, but there's a lot of theory and other evidence from other studies to help us to determine some potential explanations. Excuse me. One explanation is exactly what you're talking about, this idea of social comparison theory. And so social comparisons essentially argue that we compare ourselves to others in society for a num- on a number of domains, including perhaps um, as related to our weight status. So you can imagine that if you're a parent of a young child and you drop your child, you drop your child to preschool, you also have your child play in neighborhood parks. And in all these settings, the prevalence of obesity may be high, um, as we know, and therefore you you interact and see people who are obese pretty common. Hmm. Um, And so you perhaps then may judge your child's weight status based on their peers or people who you see every day as opposed to clinical guidelines. And it's actually interesting um, that you brought that up now because also uh, uh, a physician recently tweeted me and shared with me that even him as a physician um, found it difficult to 
uh, visually identify a child as overweight or obese because he sees so many overweight and obese children. Sure. And for me, that was really telling, yeah. especially um, in light of social comparisons. Um, so I think that's probably the major thing that's going on here. So you almost have to do it more just based on the numbers, right? Height, weight, kind of the BMI thing. I mean, is that, I guess exactly. that's, because that, that, that's, that's, that's objective. It's not going to be based on everybody else you're seeing that day. Exactly. Exactly. So, so obesity among adults is based on a formula based on height and weight. And for kids, it's, it's based on a formula um, BMI for height and weight. Um, but it accounts also for age and sex. Um, and it takes into account um, the child's growth uh, patterns. Right. And that's, those are set um, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's it's um it's really an interesting study too because you you found in the data that the second set of data you were comparing the children were actually more obese and more overweight than the first data set is that right? That's correct. Yes. And and was there a difference? Talk about that. Um. So it's even more telling essentially because uh, the kids were more overweight and more obese in the in the more recent sample. Um, However, their parents were just as likely or more or less likely to correctly identify their kids, their, their kids um, as, as overweight. Hmm. Um, so it suggests basically that we will have a harder time in the, in the coming years to correctly identify our children as overweight and obese, um, given this. Yeah. And there's a couple other nuances of the study that I'd like to just briefly mention. Yeah. Um, one of which is we found disparities in this. And disparities are just differences. Um, so... We know that black children, for example, are more likely to be overweight and obese. And in our study, we found that black parents were especially less likely to correctly identify their overweight child as obese. Mm. And so it suggests that not only will, will obesity continue, but among certain subpopulations, that obesity will especially continue in light of the fact that their parents may uh, are, find it harder to correctly identify their child as overweight and obese. Wow. I mean, and that's, I mean, really, that is the key to this whole thing is if we can't see it, we can't address it. We don't address it. Exactly. Exactly. And so some, there are a number of implications from this study, but one of which is we are arguing that there needs to be clear communication between the pediatrician and the parent for them to, one, understand what overweight and obese is and slash the complications of that. And so a parent, as you can imagine, may not understand that an obese child who's two may actually grow up to be an obese adolescent. They may not understand that or know that. Um, mm. So I think one major thing that this study um, sheds to light is that we need to begin those, those conversations. Yeah, start... obesity in adolescence and adulthood. Yeah, start educating. I mean, I, I could see that. We think, oh, he's just got his baby fat. He's just cute, little baby exactly. fat. You know, but by the exactly. time they're 18, it ain't baby fat anymore, is it? Um, we're speaking with Dr. Dustin Duncan. Uh, doctor, will you hang on with us? We want to take a break, come back, and I'd love you to teach us more about maybe what should those conversations be? How can we improve our communication with our doctors? And how do we make sure we get the right numbers so we, we can effectively evaluate our children? Uh, we're speaking again with Dr. Dustin Duncan. And uh, he's from NYU Langone uh, Medical Center, and uh, he's teaching us about some research that he's recently completed about understanding and seeing uh, your children's weight issues. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. More after the break.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking with Dr. Dustin Duncan, and uh, Dr. Duncan is a research lead on um, a study that came out of NYU Langone Medical Center, and he's partnering with researchers, researchers from Georgia Southern University and Fudan University in Shanghai. And in the study, they basically found that a large percentage of parents um, cannot see their toddler as obese. They don't see it. And yet, um, and for a variety of reasons that we've been talking about, some are just simply social comparison. They're used to comparing their child to the other children in their family, in the neighborhood, and around them, which, by the way, might also be obese. Um, but it's a, it's a really big problem, and uh, Dr. Duncan is trying to help us kind of sort through what his research might mean to the average person. Dr. Dustin Duncan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, you, you said one of the key kind of outcomes of this that we really want to make sure that we try to do is uh, is more is better communication, clear communication with our doctors, our physicians. To, to, when I go into my doctor and with, let's say, if I had a toddler, what should I be saying to the doctor? What should I be asking for? Well, I would ask for um, your child's BMI percentile. Um, which is the indication of whether your child is overweight or obese or not. And so children who are at the 95th percentile for their body mass index are considered obese, and children who are greater than um, 85th percentile but less than the 94th percentile are considered overweight. And so I would, I would explicitly ask that. I can share a couple of things uh, yeah. in kind of as a uh, living my life. And so I was recently on a trip um, talking uh, to a colleague of mine who's also another epidemiologist, and she happens to be also a new mother. And so I was sharing with her kind of the findings from this study and just my research in general. And this is someone who has a PhD in epidemiology, and she was talking to me about potentially her being an overweight child um, when she was really young and and being concerned about her, her daughter. And really kind of my study helped her to, 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 to begin to identify this. But she also shared with me, which I thought was interesting, was that her physician, or really her child's pediatrician, never actually once talked about um, her child's body mass index with her. Hmm. And the child is uh, about one and a half. And so in this living for a year and a half, the pediatrician never uh, relayed the child's body mass index to the mother. And so I would say that, that the first thing is we, we need to actually kind of have that conversation. I'm not convinced that the conversation is happening. Yeah, um, no. And in fact, I would, I would argue that it's probably not happening enough. What, what do you think that's about? I mean, he's a physician. <laughs> Was he just saying, you know, we probably need to get her on a diet and get her, get her some healthier eating habits, but not mentioning BMI? Or is it, do they not buy into BMI? What is it? Why would they not mention it? I think that there may be, a, again, this is speculation. We're not sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually conducting uh, additional studies to understand um, what's the, where the communication breakdown is happening and what we can do to kind of correct uh, parents' misperception of their child's weight status, um, so TBD. Um, but I can speculate and say that one thing that may be happening is that Pediatricians, like other physicians, have a limited time in their clinical interaction or in a clinical encounter. And so uh, obesity or status may not be the 
the predominant thing that they're focusing on. Yeah. So they may focus on the child having being asthmatic and managing that, or they may focus on um, other kind of things that they believe to be more pressing. Um, yeah, but, we, but we, the truth is we don't really know yeah. why that conversation, why we believe the conversation isn't happening as frequently as it should be. And then number two, the, the, um, the parallel with that, why the conversation, if it's happening, why it's not happening in a, a, a way that the parents are able to uh, totally absorb that information and to, enough for them to, to recognize it, but also to make changes yeah. in their child's life, in their lives, which, which would also influence their child's life. It's it really is. Uh, I mean, it, it could be time, couldn't it? I mean, I, every time my doctor brings up BMI, my I just feel this need to punch him. So half the time I'm like, "Shut up! What are you talking about?" But it's interesting because we're trying to fight obesity, and especially if you're a doctor and you see a child that is maybe one and a half times the size that they need to be, then it's it needs to be addressed yeah i think you're you're dead on and and also the perception of it as parents we need to actually pay attention of all the places we can't just uh i don't know you know sweep this under the rug and just positively interpret their body image um this might be the place we need to deal with it right we just can't only select the good here True. Um, so I, I would focus on, if I were a parent, I would do the following. One, I would make sure, again, that we have these proactive discussions about weight issues with our doctor. Um, and I would say about our own weight, as well as the weight of our children. Yeah. Um, then I would say it's important for parents to watch their own weight and to serve as role models for their kids, because, in fact, they are role models. And then finally, I would really focus on not the weight per se, because um, at the same time, I am sensitive to and and want, uh, I, I wouldn't want an over, overweight or obese child to be stigmatized or to suffer from uh, negative um, mental health um, um, conditions like depression, et cetera, from their increased weight status. And so I wouldn't focus on the weight per se. What I would focus on are, are the behaviors. And so I'd focus on healthy living, yeah. um, especially healthy eating and uh, keeping moving. So being in sports, et cetera. And I would try to make these um, family activities. And so it's not just, you know, the children who are eating healthfully and then the parents are eating fast food. It's, a, it's really a, a family um, uh, and environment kind of change. And I think this, it's really important, especially when we're thinking about, again, these younger kids. You bet. So in this study, the kids were two to five. And you can imagine that, it, that three-year-olds don't have a lot of autonomy. <laughs> yeah, they're not out. They're, gonna eat. they're not driving to McDonald's exactly. on their fun. own. I mean, this is a parenting issue, right? This is, and that's, we could change that by, by kind of having a little wake-up call, too, at the doctor's office. Yeah, but I, I would argue, though, that while at some level this may, that parents are important because parents are the gatekeepers, and parents' recognition of this, uh, their child's increased weight status, will, uh, research has shown that it will impl- influence them to be helpful. Yeah. Um, I would also argue, though, that we have to remember that Obesity, especially like other conditions, but especially obesity, is a multifactorial condition. Sure. Uh, and put put differently, that there are a number of factors that influence obesity that are outside of our control. So you can imagine the case that every neighborhood doesn't have a supermarket. Right. Every neighborhood doesn't have a fast. Um, some neighborhoods have more fast food outlets than others, and you can imagine that if you have neighborhoods with more fast food outlets, 
then you're probably more likely to you're more likely to research shows sure. to eat at those establishments. And so essentially, you're you're also more likely to uh, gain weight and become overweight and, and or obese. Um, and so it, there there are there are some things at the individual level that we can do, but we also have to remember that there are quote unquote contextual reasons that some people are more likely to be overweight as, yeah. as opposed to others. No, I totally agree. And in fact, we spend a whole hour on it too. I mean, in in a lot of these inner cities, there's just there's not. Uh, Whole Foods on every corner. There's not. Um, there are all these fast food restaurants, and I guess all the more reason that if we could just have a little bit more of an understanding of where we really are in relation to others, um, and then maybe any education you can towards it. But also, I mean, it's a it's a different it's a different situation and a different fight for every parent in every situation. I think. That's a tough. It's a tough situation too because it doesn't seem like it's going to change um, unless we're we're making changes. And it's not even just the parents that need to make changes. Schools need to make changes. In just a minute, we'll be talking about you know the the um, the programs to feed breakfast to inner city children and lunches to inner city children and some of the benefits of those programs as well. So interesting stuff. We appreciate you again, Dr. Dustin Duncan. Great uh, work. Keep up the work and keep uh, educating us on how to uh, to fight uh, obesity with our family and our and our neighborhoods and our kids. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be going and looking at some other research that uh, was done by Dr. David Frisvold, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Iowa. You know, some of these uh, breakfast programs for these inner city kids that um, don't always get the best meals, they're starting to prove that these programs are actually raising the grades of these kids. Uh pretty powerful thing, a little um, solution, a change that's making a big difference on our youth. This is the Matt Townsend Show, back talking about uh, breakfast programs in the inner city schools. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Listen to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, right? That's what they've been telling us forever. Schools have stressed it, uh, you know, even since I was a child, which is many, 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 many decades. Now, the the deal is uh, science now, though, is actually backing it up. Even further, we're finding out that the studies over the years have asserted that a healthy breakfast can help students focus better in school But according to some recent research from Iowa professor Dr. David Frisvold, he's found that free breakfasts provided by the school systems to help the low-income households are actually improving academic results. So the data is in. Dr. Frisvold, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You bet. And this is great. Uh, This is great news, great information. Um, So so talk about your study and, and what are you finding out? Sure. This was a study that was um, looking at the USDA's school breakfast program, and I was trying to understand whether the availability of the school breakfast program in schools improves student achievement for elementary school students hmm. um, throughout elementary school. Now, is this the first time this has been studied? So there's been a lot of research on breakfast in general. Okay. And 
um, in other countries, different types of uh, meal programs. There actually had not been a lot of research on the school breakfast program as it was actually instituted in the U.S. Okay. Um, so there had been a, a paper a couple decades ago that looked at a few schools, um, but there, it was actually surprising to me that there hadn't been a lot of research across the country, particularly since when President Johnson launched the program, one of the things that he said when he launched it was that the intent was that the school breakfast program would improve uh, student outcomes and student achievement. Interesting. Um, but there really hadn't been a lot of focus on that outcome. Well, I guess part of more... it, not to interrupt you, but part of it might just simply be because they need meals no matter what, right? They need to eat. And then, but then now you're tying it to the fact that it is actually accomplishing President Johnson's one of his original goals. It's improving outcome. That's correct. And I think one of the things that's happened over the years is there's been a lot of discussion over uh, some of the smaller changes to the program um, related to some of the nutrition standards. And, um, I think some of what gets lost in that conversation is whether or not the program overall has been improving outcomes. Um, because we may have these notions of um, what we... Uh, a, a lot of people have notions of the idea that uh, the breakfast served are really not as nutritious as, hmm. as we might want them to be. Yeah. Um, Did that... and, and so I think... Did that come because up in your study? Like, did did you, did you? Uh, I guess are those the changes recently that have been made that have made it so maybe the outcomes are a little different now than they were before? So the the timing of when I had the data that I was looking at was actually before the Healthy Hunger uh, Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act had been passed. Um, so it, it's not incorporating these changes. So I would, I mean, one way of thinking through it is that the outcomes of the program can only be uh, better hmm. than what I'm finding. That's great. That's really great. And so in your, in your research, uh, you say that it has, it, there, I guess, a correlation between the breakfast programs for, um, for the, the lower-income households is improving outcomes. What are you seeing? What are the, what are the improvements you're seeing? So I'm seeing improvements in uh, math. Um, the, the math achievement uh, that are also mirrored in uh, reading and science achievement. Hmm. And so what, what I see is um, it's a, about a, an 8% uh, of a, 8% of a standard deviation change wow. for each year um, that the breakfast program is available. And it's cumulative throughout elementary school. 8% so, improvement from with breakfast, I guess, and not having breakfast, uh, 8% improvement on the standard deviation uh, uh, with an accumulative effect, with a cumulative effect over every year. Yes. Wow. That's great. So, you know, it's, it's, an, um, it's an interesting thing. Uh, a lot of times what will come up is y- you think of... Um, when students are getting ready to take their, their, their tests. And you see these letters that go home to the parents, and it'll, it'll say, make sure your child gets a healthy breakfast that morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that 
that people have often said is, well, if it's really important that day, isn't it important every day? <laughs> and That's so um, what, uh, you know, what this study is doing is it's looking at the availability of the program throughout the school year um, and the idea that it does pay off, Yeah. Uh, um, you know, at least for these outcomes. It's um, And then I, I, I'm assuming, because as, just as a father that does get those letters and they are telling me to make sure my kid eats, I sometimes wonder if um, I'm taking good enough care of my kids. We're not a low-income household, but um, it's, it's, it makes you wonder, like, wow, I bet you my child may not have had on some of those days of big testing, they may not have had as good of a breakfast or as healthy of a breakfast as they needed, or even these kids that are being subsidized a little bit. It, um, yeah, I mean, so one thing I guess that's, that's useful to keep in mind is that the school breakfast program is actually available to all students. It's just that the um, amount that you pay is going to vary based on household income. Okay, yeah. So, so I mean, that's uh, yeah. Th- then you're just going to have to put in a certain amount depending on your income. Does when you think about your study, what drove you to to go here in the research? I mean, you're an economist, so you're not a nutritionist. Um, what what drove you there? So I'm I'm generally interested in the role of uh, public programs in improving um, education and, and health outcomes for. Um, for students and primarily for for low income students, and I had been interested in the um, in particular the, the extent to which uh, health and nutrition programs can can uh, boost education outcomes yeah well i i I honestly I appreciate the research because so many times when we look at these these types of studies we you know we we know that a lot of money is going to this and yet we don't always know how effective the money is and how effectively it's being spent, and is it even nutritional? So it sounds like just recently they made changes to the nutrition level, so we know the meals are better, healthier, and we also uh, are hearing now that there is a correlation to actual improvements and outcomes in achievement in reading and science and math. Um, do, you pre- do you predict that we could make them even better? I mean, is there? I mean, that's a pretty good little increase. Uh, you know, do you sense the numbers can get better now that we're paying more attention to them? Um, so, you know, that's the hope. Yeah. Right. Is is that you know as the overall quality of of the meals provided uh, increases, that there's um, a payoff for students. Hmm. Um, it's interesting. Uh, you know, this goes back to Johnson, President Johnson. And, I mean, a goal of his to improve scores and, and grades based on getting these kids' meals and, and healthier meals, um, it's it's kind of neat that it's finally coming to fruition. Sometimes I guess you'd wonder, why wasn't this being done earlier, you know? Uh, yeah, I think around that that time with President Johnson, there had just been a large focus in the country um, and turning towards anti-poverty programs at the time. Hmm. Um, and actually, the school lunch program predates this. Um, oh, it does? Uh, by a couple decades. So there's been the focus on, on lunch in schools, and I think that helped set the, uh, set the table 
for the uh, focus on on breakfast in school. Okay. As well, and um, does like I know a group, a volunteer, kind of a five hundred one c three, a charity that they do this. Uh, they provide food for people in other country to take at home. And the, for the kids to have breakfast the next morning, they always send the kids home with food. So that in the morning they have food to come back. They even on the weekends set um, and give the food on the weekend. So when the child's coming back, they they are eating healthy over the weekend and they don't have to pick up that gap and fix that. Is anything like that going on in our school system to, to make sure that they're also eating over the weekend? Um, there, so I've heard of... Uh, some programs at more of a local level okay. um, that are being implemented. Um, but not... not. Um, I'm trying to think if at the, at the national level if there's a program for weekends. Yeah. Um, the summer meals program um, is, is quite a bit smaller. Um, and they can take and, care of that. In the summer, they'll be able to still get meals and food. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, the... I mean, that's one of the things, I guess, is the school serves as a as a mechanism of delivery. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah. And it, it seems like a really good idea because that's, you know, seems to be where the rubber meets the road. And so uh, it, I just appreciate it. And I appreciate the fact that we're finally getting the data. And, and you know, it, to know that, that these programs are working, other than, I mean, I love just that we're feeding the kids. I think that's in and of itself a great goal and ideal. And also to know that we're, we're measuring outcomes. It's a powerful thing. So, Dr. David Frisvold, we appreciate you, your great work. Uh, again, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at University of Iowa and uh, making sure that um, not only are our kids getting fed, but we're now we're creating the data to prove that, that uh, it's helping. And as we all kind of would assume, right? Good stuff, folks. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you find the good in the world. And one little study is showing that uh, even a government program <laughs> – we sometimes don't understand or we always bemoan or get frustrated with. They work, folks, and it's going to make a big difference to those kids that are getting these meals and can go uh, have better outcomes, maybe even more education, maybe more income over lifetime. Good stuff. We're going to take a break, my friends, and when we come back, continue more ideas, more insights. Remember, the goal of the show is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier life. Dr. David Frisvold uh, showed us one way to do it, and uh, we'll continue the learnings after this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of the program. We call it Townsapalooza. Who calls uh, it that? I, I believe Jimmy, it was Jimmy, you. Jimmy calls it that. Jimmy? Jimmy Crackcorn? Welcome to Townsapalooza. Uh, mm, <laughs> no, I don't think that's the... Yeah, we got to work on branding. Yeah. Okay. Make a note, James. Uh, okay. Branding. Branding. We've got to work on branding. Okay, work on branding. Are you sending the note yes. to the Pacific Coast Fleet? Dis- to the Pacific Fleet? Distress call for better branding. <laughs> yeah, We're our- sinking. We're sinking. <laughs> our advertising agency is off coast. You are the advertising agency for the Matt Townsend Show. And I'm based off coast. Yes, you are. You're actually based 
inland. Yeah. You're based in the Rocky Mountain area. Yeah, but uh, off co- the coast of the Great Salt Lake. Good point. Utah Lake, actually. Yeah. Uh, welcome to the show, folks. Have we got a great show for you? Um, have you ever had trouble motivating your employees? I know I have. Nothing harder than moving a bunch of people to one end. When they've all got their own ideas, some are on the phone, just texting away in the middle of a monologue. I'm, I'm just listening. You're, you're, you're going to a point here. Have you had problems motivating yeah. employees? Ben Decker is going to be joining us. I, I found an article by Ben that was in um, Harvard Business Review about how to get your employees excited to do their work. And I thought, oh, Ben, I need you. I mean, I have a lot of employees. They're not employees. I have a lot of people I work with that they're not always motivated. I don't know what it is. Like tomorrow, for example. Have you noticed Mike's leaving tomorrow to go to Hawaii? Have you noticed he's just been slacking today? If he was really motivated, he wouldn't even go, I think. Yeah. Isn't it weird? And Ben's here now. And Ben came from Hawaii. How unmotivated do you have to be to leave Hawaii to come to Utah? Totally unmotivated. It's really hard. Uh, We do have a really great update that we wanted to fill you in on. Um, In the earlier show, we talked about the Pope uh, is really big in siestas. He likes an afternoon nap, a siesta, as they call it in Argentina. And Don has approved siestas. Nice. For the entire team. But didn't he say they were from 8 to 10? Yeah, local time here. Which would be during our show. Mm -hmm. So did we get to sleep on the air? Well, some of us do. So not you, because hmm? you're usually busy that time of day. <sighs> what a ripoff. Yeah. There's a... there's only one guy here that needs a siesta. Who's that? Moi. Oh, right. Maybe if you went to bed earlier. Yeah, right. I've got kids I'm trying to get graduating. <laughs> I've got a son that has to take a test today. Uh, uh. What test? He has to take a test in geography. To pass? Pretty much. To graduate high school? Yeah. It came, it snuck up on him. Really? Like, is that test tomorrow? <laughs> I is was that unaware. test that makes or breaks my grade tomorrow? Is it his final? It will be his final. Okay. <laughs> if he doesn't pass it, I'm done. He, he's a student or not, he's a class officer next year. And he's like, well, I'm like, you won't be if you don't pass that test. Got of the grades. How could it be? How could your grade be slow? I just didn't turn in a few things. I, I, I sometimes I forget. I'm like, are you kidding me? What I've do you used, forget? I, I've used that argument before. I forget, Dad. It's hard to remember everything you got to turn in. Then my mom bought me a uh, day planner, yeah. which I promptly did not use. He's got a phone, and so I'm like, I'm taking your phone away. At least you promptly did something. I went. Eh, <laughs> I'm not going to use you that. Promptly, see, that was efficient. <laughs> yeah. So you were motivated. Made a decision. I was motivated. So that's what we're going to figure out today with our guest in a few minutes, Ben Decker. He's going to teach us how to motivate our employees, how to communicate in a way, a different way, so that we might actually get to figure out what drives them. And I'm dying to figure it out. All right. We'll see if it changes anything. Anything going on in the news? Uh, A couple weeks ago, we had the Amtrak accident in Philadelphia. Amtrak will install video surveillance cameras in its locomotive cabs to keep a better eye on engineers. One of the questions with that accident was what was the engineer doing well, as the crash came up? There's no cameras in the isn't cab. Isn't that the question with every train accident? 
you would think. What was the engineer? Any trade accident involving speed, and we find out all the time that they were texting, so just a camera. It seems like that's the uh, duh. You'd think. Uh, the cameras will be installed on 70 new locomotives, first on Good. the Northeastern Corridor and the Keystone Corridor between Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, and uh, New York. Those locomotives are expected to be in service by the end of 2015. Good. And eventually the entire fleet will have these cameras. So notice, with our last biggest, with uh, the police problems and with the train problems, the answer seems to be cameras. Cameras. Police cameras, body cameras, train cameras. Everybody gets a camera. At some point, studio, radio studio cameras. I know. I want want a simulcast for sure. We're going to start simulcasting. No, no, no. Not for simulcasting. Oh, for security. It'll just be a closed circuit to Don's office. Oh, at least it's not going to Donna, the HR's <laughs> Could office. be up to her office, too. <laughs> that would really get us in trouble. Wait a second. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. What else? What other news? A Sacramento prodigy mm-hmm. named uh, Tankish Abraham. Who? Tankish Abraham. Tankish? I'm saying it wrong. He just graduated from college. Yeah. He's 11 years old. What? He has three degrees. He started kindergarten just a few years ago, skipped the first grade, completed the second grade, and started taking classes at American River College when he was seven. What a great kid. The boy finished high school last year, started taking college classes full-time. He earned an associate's degree in uh, general science, math, and physical science, and foreign language studies. Hold on. What? How old is he? Eleven. Yeesh. <laughs> you think he can call my son? Maybe. This is a motivated uh, young young man. He's eleven here. years old and he's graduating from college. Yes, he graduated college last year. He has an associate's in general science, another degree in math and physical science, and a degree in foreign language studies. Well, yeah, but can he dunk a ball? No, he got a four point oh, and he you know across what? the board. That's amazing. Uh, when he's not in school, he likes to play video games and swim. The family makes sure that he spends time with friends his own age That's to kind great. of keep him Try normal. Keep him, yeah, well, can you imagine that conversation? Get kind of warped if you're <laughs> you're not associated that way. He hopes to attend Stanford. Oh, that's cool. Or a California University uh, campus to major in biomedical engineering or a related field. His future goals, mm-hmm. Nobel Prize, medical doctor slash researcher, wow. that kind of thing, and president of the United States. Wow. Yeah, he'll get that. My goals at 11? Probably to get some form of Super Nintendo. Yeah. Because those were pretty hot back then. Mine was to be able to push an entire Big Mac in my mouth at one time. (laughs) That's a good goal to have. Never did it. But I did have the paramedics called twice (laughs) trying. Have you heard of the leap second? The leap second, is it like a leap hour, leap day? Similar. But it's just a second. On June 30th at midnight? A leap second will be added. Oh, great. The More second time. is added to the uh, Coordinated Universal Time, or UTC. That's great. In order to synchronize atomic clocks with astronomical time to within 0.9 seconds. Will any of us notice a difference? This does not mean the days are 25. Or, but what it says here is um, since, how does it go? Oh, the last leap second was added on June 30th of 2012. Since 1972, 25 seconds have been added. This doesn't mean the Earth has slowed down 25 seconds compared to the atomic time. Since then, this does not mean the days are 25 seconds longer, only the day on which the leap seconds are inserted. They have 86,401 seconds instead of the usual 86,400 seconds. But who's counting? Yeah, this is just to keep your atomic clock 
That's good. And the earth is gradually slowing down over years. And eight newest words in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Yes, what? They actually added 1,700 Let's see if we use any of them, because I make up a lot of words. NSFW. NSFW. You know what that means? It's Uh, not safe for work. Okay. Uh, The term meme. Yes. You use that one. Meme it. Kind of incorrectly, but that's fine. (laughs) Um, Clickbait. Headlines that are simply overstating what okay. the article's about just, just to get you to click on it. Then yeah. when you get there, you're like, oh, this Quick had nothing bait. to do with that. Okay. Uh, jegging. Pardon? A leggings that are designed to resemble tight-fitting pair of denim jeans. Oh, James wore those the other day. They totally freaked me out. <laughs> the worst part about them is that they don't have pockets. <laughs> but they have fake pockets They look on like them. they have pockets. Them is jamming jeggings. <laughs> okay. Net neutrality yes. is a new term. Oh, jeez. And so they've added it as a Why is I, that a term? I don't know. It seems like two words that exist and they combine them. Uh, vocal fry. We've talked about this in the office where people are talking and then they end their comments like that. Isn't that great? And uh, a, vo- a vocal, vocal effect fry. produced by very slow vibration of the vocal cords and characterized by creaking sound and low pitch. <laughs> vocal fry. Look it up. That's Love great. Vocal fry. And photobomb. 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 That's good. When you jump in the back of your phone. So these are all official words now. They're, they're in the dictionary now. That's great. Just like the chaos when ain't was put in the dictionary when oh, I was in the school. Ain't, ain't a word. Yeah. Until it was in there and then it's like ain't yeah. is uh, supposed to say. <laughs> actually, it is in there now. Clickbait, huh? And vocal fry. Vocal fry. Yeah, don't do that. Good. See, we're learning. We're here to help you learn. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, Ben Decker will be joining us. He uh, had an article that he wrote in uh, Harvard Business Review, and he's joining us to discuss about communications and how we might be able to use a different communication style to motivate our employees a little bit more. That's up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as a manager, what keeps you up at night? Are you worried about achieving goals and meeting quotas? What about boosting the results of low performers or keeping top performers motivated? It seems that there is now a gap between manager and employee with endless distractions, and the research shows it's pulling 67% of employees away from their work while on the clock. Dan Decker is a leader in the field of business communications. He joins us today to help us understand ways of communicating more effectively and uh, ways that can help us actually create a better work environment. Uh, Dan, welcome to the, or Ben, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Matt. Sorry about that. Uh, It's great to have you. And motivating people, it's not easy. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like we think if you go to business school, you'll be a great manager, but that's not necessarily the case. You really ought to go to communication school. Well, it takes intention, no doubt. And communication is one of those things that we put on our back burner and we just assume as long as I say words or give direction, people will do it. And that's just not the way it works. And so a large part of what we're about is just to wake people up and shift how they approach 
any and every opportunity. Yeah. How do we how should we go about motivating our people? I mean, I guess there's the old carrot and stick, right? I just beat down on them, scare them, intimidate them. But you know, that doesn't seem to work in a world where they have so many other choices to to of how they can work, where they can work. So how should we use our communication differently? Well, we take we take a two-prong approach. One is around behaviors, what are we doing? And secondly is content. So behaviors, just realize what you're doing on your eyes, your smile. Are you really serious? Are you monotone? How is that motivating? Do people want to tune you out or even want to listen to you? So it starts with awareness and then always wanting to improve just some of the behaviors. But I'll focus a little more on content. I think this is a big one for any manager, any leader, to shift their mindset around their own thing and really think about the audience. For example, if I'm talking about Matt Townsend right now, what, what is it about you? What are you dealing with? If we're in this state in May, what, what's going on in your world? So I shift my content based on you. Oh, interesting. That's something most leaders don't do. No, it, it, but if you don't get into me, then um, you you kind of aren't. You're not going to know me. You're not going to understand what I'm going through. So a lot of what you're saying to me won't even. I won't buy it. Right. And so we think as long as I say it, oh, they'll get it. Yeah. We walk away assuming it's done, but that's not motivating or inspiring. So the content really ends up being my people. I, yeah, I, well, I, you got you to tie in your piece to it in a, in a subtle way, but then we, we lose track of the human connection. And so we keep it black and white, data, uh, very logic, and uh, it doesn't connect emotionally. And so we're, we're always pushing for what we call sharps, stories, humor, analogy, a reference, a quote, or even a P for picture, a visual Help people get it in a way that's more emotional. Hmm. No, in fact, we've done that. We just talked about how um, analogies help us connect to what we're going through. So that's really what you're talking about too, right? Is having, is having a different connection to the content that, that might last with me longer, a story or a, just a really good metaphor. Well, yeah, we get in our own way. And so when you use an analogy or metaphor, it grabs a flag in your head, Matt, and says, oh, I get it, and we can move on. And that's, that just helps people get bought in much more easily and quickly. Do you sense, Ben, I mean, it's, it's almost like we worry about the people skills second, and we kind of go for the technical skills first, you know, the MBA, the, you know, knowing how to, to do a cost or a spreadsheet or knowing how to understand your business opportunities. But in the end, it, it seems like most of our success is going to come down to people and my ability to either understand them or not. And that's not always that's not always taught, is it? It's not. And it doesn't come natural to us because we're taught almost it's about competence. It's about showing you know what you're doing and we forget that warmth piece. And I and I always love to quote the there's a Harvard professor, Amy Cuddy, who shares, you know, it is about warmth and competence. But you have to have warmth first before competence, hmm. and that's a that's a good takeaway for anyone in whatever they do. Yeah, it's yeah, because the warmth makes it so I'll I want to access more of this. I want to trust it. I mean, I guess that's the key. It's it's really about trust. And I I know in an article that I read um, about uh, from you that it was trust is kind of the big issue in today's workplace, isn't it? Trust has been low. And part of it is the recession. Part of it is any crisis you look at. But we have very low trust. 
And so when you look at any leader in a company, if you're walking into an environment where we don't even trust you as the leader, how am I going to listen to you or even want to do what you tell me? And so that's a big part of this, of building the trust to get your team to want to do it. And some of that has to do with giving them, you know, the Simon Sinek approach would start with the why, help them understand why they're doing something. So we got to pull it back to help give the vision and the purpose of what we're doing. That's interesting. And yeah, because if I'm not connected to the, the deeper goals here, the deeper purpose, I'm just spinning my wheels. How do I, how do I help my people? I mean, I, I guess if I'm, let's just say, let's just say I'm you, I'm a leader of a company and I'm trying to motivate everyone to, to kind of work toward that end. How do I combine my mission and my employee's purpose or passion? Well, each of the roles are going to be different. And so let's just start with, um, I'll give you a real life example. So our team, we have, we have our administrative team, the people that pack and ship and take calls. We call them the dream team because they are like the core of what we do. If we don't do that well, nothing goes well. So we, we build up and help them understand how important their role is for all the 30 programs that are happening this week around the country and around the world to ship to communicate, to make sure the participants are there. So they get it, and they're actually excited about shipping and boxing and packing. That's a big deal in our world. Hmm. And so it's really, you've got to somehow make sure that I, as the uh, that I as an employee, am connected to the deeper purpose. And I, is it, are there times that I might grow out of my role, like where I'm just mm-hmm. done? I don't I don't want to be the shipping specialist anymore. I want to go do something else. What What do we do with those people that that really their mission isn't what they're doing? Well, and that's where the listener focus comes in. Because if you're my employee, Matt, it's all about you. And you're on the right bus. We just got to make sure you're in the right seat of the bus. And so it's getting you, getting you to feel that I care so much about you and your involvement in the company and your contribution – it's not about exactly what you're doing. So if you're done shipping or packing, let's get you in, on a better seat where you need to be. Yeah. So it's about you. And, and in the end, that's good for business. It's it's better for business that I either – that I spend some time getting to know you to know where to put you on the bus or even to see if we, if it's time that you – if you – some people just might want to get off the bus. And um, but <laughs> But in the end, I mean we don't – a lot of times we just look away and pretend like this will all get better. Well, and if you even step back, it's it's getting people t- from this I have to to I want to, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big theme of our discussion now. And in our book, we wrote, we write about the army, and in the army or any uh, services, you you do what you're told. But we we talked to some cadets, and they said, "Listen, when I know my supervisor cares about it, or I feel like an emotion based on the direction, I do the task differently." And that goes into exactly what we're talking about. You have to, you have to show you care. It's about you, Matt. It's about you, employee. What do we need to do? Because that will make you more loyal to me or your supervisor or whoever you're is directing you. Yeah, I remember uh, I heard about a Ritz Carlton employee once that was just he was a janitor. I think he was changing like light bulbs in a ceiling, and somebody came in in the lobby, and some consultants were watching this person just struggling with their their luggage in the lobby and the janitor came down off of the 
off of uh, his ladder, ran across the lobby, helped the customer take their uh, bags up to the front um, clerk. And none of that, by the way, was their job description. None of that was what they should have been doing by definition. And then after the consultants went and asked this janitor why he did that, and the janitor said, well, because they were struggling with their luggage. And he said, I know, but so but your role is to put in the light bulbs. And he said, no, I guess the, the mission statement of the Ritz-Carlton is um, something like ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And they connected – he connected his purpose to that mission that he's a gentleman and he got down off the ladder as a gentleman to go serve a fellow human, a lady that needed some help in that moment. It had nothing to do with his role. He was just and a good person. what I love about that – and what I love about that, we can all learn from the Ritz Carlton. They, they have, and they have gotten into their system the concept that people buy an emotion and justify with fact. Hmm. If I am that customer struggling with luggage and the janitor helped me, there's an emotional connection I have to the Ritz, that. and I'll be willing to spend fifty to a hundred dollars more at the hotel because of their people. And that's just the facts. So true. So true. Uh, We're speaking with Ben Decker from Decker Communications. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion about how you get into the hearts and the minds of your people by listening effectively and truly, truly being willing to be influenced. They're, They're talking about their new book, Communicate to Influence, How to Inspire Your Audience to Action. We'll take a break. Come back more with Ben Decker when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking to Ben Decker from Decker Communications. Uh, if you go to Decker.com, that's pretty much all you need to do to find this uh, this site. They also have a brand new book out that you really need to go look up, Communicate to Influence, How to Inspire Your Audience to Action. And it, uh, in the book, they share real examples and tips for how to become a better or more effective communicator. Uh, ben, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you. It really is. Uh, I think it's so overrated. I, I spend a lot of time coaching and and training on communication and, and conflict resolution stuff. And in the end, um, I, I think everybody thinks they know how to communicate, but your communication needs to create results with people, not just over people, right? You don't want to just churn everyone up in this day and age where there's so many other options and anyone really could become your competitor, you need to get buy-in with people. Well, and I, I like your description of always getting better. And and we, we talk about in the book this idea of this fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And that's what we all have to have because communications is one of those areas that you never reach perfection. I, I do comparisons to golf a lot of you can't get become perfect. So it's got to be a mindset of always get better. What can I do to get better? Hmm. And golf's a great example too, because you'll never hit the same shot twice, and so it's it's constantly just adjusting, it's adapting, it's and and, and you see that in your conversations with people. You talk a lot about empathy and empathizing, and I, I just kind of know historically when I teach that to corporate America, you know, at a big engine manufacturing plant in in Ohio, they kind of look at you like, oh, geez. 
But the reality is when it comes down to a healthy relationship, there's got to be a healthy dose of empathy. Teach us about that. Well, empathy can be shown just in your face. I mean, we do a lot of video feedback, get people, get our executives and clients on video just so they're aware of what they're doing. And most have no idea what they're doing. So, for example, we'll show a top executive and a senior vice president sharing great news about a quarter, and we'll record it. And then we'll show it back to them and mute it and say, is this good news or bad news that you're sharing? And it looks very stone cold. And he might be saying, we had a great quarter. I'm so proud of this team. But he's saying it with this monotone voice, very serious face and furrowed brow. So let's tie that to empathy. When you're showing you care, yet you have a monotone voice, you don't smile, you show no facial affect, it's hard to show empathy. And that's the behavioral side of it that most people are just unaware of. Hmm. I mean, it's just feedback. That's, that's, it is, but it's tough to get. Yeah. I mean, no one it, – it, it's opening up the door to a very emotional – I mean, this is where our programs – people come in with high anxiety, public speaking, presentation skills. They're one of those top fear factors. But the great part, Matt, is when, when they leave this program, they, they're excited to incorporate it because, number one, they're way more aware of what they're doing, and they have more confidence because of that. And yeah. that's very practical. Well, and the neat thing about it is you can improve and decrease your anxiety by just gathering some tools, some skills. It's funny. I've never thought about the power of just getting the feedback. One of the things we have in my industry of like broadcasting and TV and radio and stuff is you – the feedback's very clear. (laughs) If you'll just go watch yourself, you'll learn a lot really quickly. And it's true. Business leaders, executives, they don't necessarily get the feedback until they're being fired a lot of times. Well, we, we, our first chapter we titled Business Communication Sucks, <laughs> which sounds a little extreme and, and strong, but we do want to wake people up to realize that we, we, we lie to ourselves in our cultures, in our companies, in our organizations. We lie to, these little white lies, and one of them, we have five of them, but one of them is people tell me I'm pretty good at communicating, at speaking. And that is a, a lie because top executives especially are given what we call a shine job. Hey, Matt, you're good. What can yeah. I tell you? You're my boss. You're great. Everything you did was great. It's funny. When you when you communicate down, you get nothing but smiles because <laughs> they think you're great. But it, it's weird because we communicate differently with those that are below us in the hierarchy and versus those that are equal to us versus those that are above us. And we probably need feedback from all of these sides, don't we? Yeah, I would say our best clients do as much of a 360 anonymous just to get a sense of what's going on. And that's the challenge because there's not that much feedback in the business world uh, other than just results. And so our ideal client is really starting at the top from CEO down because if the CEO, if the top person is implementing, is showing how to be, then everyone's got to. If they show willingness to get feedback – what we describe as a three-by-three, three three keepers, three improvements, because when you watch yourself on video, we just start to cut ourselves up. So it's important to not lose those good things we're doing. Yeah, you got to identify the the good and then what we need to work on, right? Exactly. um, So could anybody do that? How, for example, give me some advice on what you would recommend to just an average middle manager – um, that maybe has two or three people that they manage or they lead, what could they do today to go get more feedback from their, their people? 
sometimes for a middle manager, it's hard to get yourself on video. So yeah. let's put that to the side and go get an audio recorder. Use your smartphone. Record two or three of your conference calls. Record a voicemail that you do for someone and hit pound to get into the system and listen to it before you send it. Start to get a sense of what, am I, what kind of experience am I creating out there? What would it be like to be on the opposite end? That's going to be very eye-opening. So that's one way to do it, yeah. just audio feedback. Get a sense because you'll be amazed at how monotone your voice might be <laughs> or how many ums and uhs might yeah. come into to play or okay, so right. And we do check-ins. Secondly, find a, a small circle of one or two or five people that you trust and say, listen, I am struggling with a monotone voice. I need to show more energy. I want to smile more. Can you let me know when I don't do it enough? Now, I, I do that on purpose. Do it the opposite of what you would say. Let me know if I don't do it while well, you didn't do it. So you, you almost want to have this type A attitude of overdo it. I want to know when I do it too much. There you that go. means that you're really trying to do it. Yeah, that's great. And 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 you're actually you want you want feedback of where where I'm working too much at it. That's great. I mean that's yeah, that's called appreciative that you're working on it. And yeah. Then they have to work on it because then you can give them feedback. So back to that trickle down. That's the best way. That's great. Is this all in the book, uh, Ben? Communicate to influence how to inspire your audience to action. Is that there? It is. We we did our best. So we've been in business for 36 years, and my wife and I co-wrote this book this last year. And we wanted to share real-life examples of different executives that we get to work with, uh, several that allowed us to, which is great. Um, and we have some great endorsements from great leaders, but it's it's real-life stuff. A lot of people think these CEOs and leads of companies are just natural at it. Yeah. No, they work at it, and that's what we got to do. It's good stuff. Again, go to Decker.com. We appreciate you, Ben. Ben Decker, uh, again, author of the book, Communicate to Influence, How to Inspire Your Audience to Action. It's just a great resource, folks. you got to get into people and be influenced by them before you go in and try to influence them. And there's some wonderful tools in that book and on the website as well, Decker.com. We'll take a break. Come back, then we'll go check in with our great friends down there at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Is this Coldplay? Holy cow! One of the greatest bands of all time. Mm, mm, mm. This is this is the music we play anytime we want to go talk to the gang down at BYU Sports Nation. Spencer Linton, Brian Logan, are you there, my friends? We are here, and every yes, teardrop sir. is a waterfall. Oh, don't you love this group? Yes, I do very much so. Who's this group? Coldplay. Oh, would you, uh, Brian? What? Brian, if you I don't, don't know, know, don't ask. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Hey, knowledge is power, my friend. Um, I did. I don't. I'm, wait, I, they have some famous songs, right? I got to. They, they have to a lot, them. dude. You're gonna love them. Yeah, I just gotta listen to uh, a few, maybe, and then I'll. I'll you, know you'll who know. They are. You know who they are. Yeah, if I hear if I hear some of the famous songs, I'll know who they are. Well, uh, yellow. That's one of their big ones. You said hello. Yellow. Yellow. 
Yellow. yellow yeah, no. The color yellow. No, I got nope. That's not gonna okay. work for me. I gotta, I gotta um, hear this actual song. Maybe you know what? If Jerem was here, he would sing. But Spencer can sing. Spence, just bust out a tune or two for Brian. Oh man, let me hear a song, man. You can't put me on the spot. Like it has know, to be spontaneous. I know, I know. I know. Pretend like we didn't say anything. It's like when people are like, "Hey, you're a sportscaster, right? Like, do some sportscaster. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do a play-by-play uh, for me. Do play-by-play right now. Uh. <laughs> hey, um, here, I got some news for you guys. Of course you do. You always have news for us. Did you hear about the 11-year-old elementary school-age kid? He's 11 years old and he's graduating from college with three degrees. Whoa. Did not hear about I that. I felt like the biggest idiot next this to is, him. This is modern-day Doogie Howser. <laughs> totally. Uh, his name is Tanish. Started at kindergarten a few years ago, but he skipped first grade, completed second grade, started taking classes at American River College when he was seven. The boy finished high school last year, started taking college classes full-time. He earned an associate's degree with a general science degree, a math and physical science degree, and a foreign languages study degree with a 4.0 grade point average. What? So is he going to, like, cure cancer one day? Probably. He's going to Stanford University, and he's going to major in biomedical engineering. And then he just plans on winning the Nobel Peace Prize, <laughs> being a medical doctor and president of the United States. Well, who's wow. going to tell him that he can't do any of those things Where, after what he's already done? So true. Where are his parents? Somebody needs to tell this boy it ain't that easy. And just, Apparently it is for him. It is. That's that's what so about great. Sports. I mean, not going to play. Well, that's what. That's it. Maybe? That's what. He, the guy can't dunk a ball. Obviously. Nope. He probably could barely hit a, a ball off a tee. I know he's eleven, but they say he plays. He plays sports. He loves to swim, and he plays video games. Hmm. So he is normal. Yeah. Yeah. How much time though? Honey, you can play for five minutes, but right. then you have to study for seventeen hours. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to graduate by the time you're twelve or not? Yeah. You need to pick it up. <laughs> You're a disgrace to this family. <laughs> well, by the way, what were you guys doing at 11? When I was 11 years old, let's see, I was the... What grade are you? Is that 6th grade? It's 6th. Six, six, I turned six, 12 in 6th yeah. grade. So I was 11 when 6th grade started. You know, I met Craig Bowlerjack for the first time. See, so that was a big moment. That's when you decided when broadcasting. Was, when I was in 6th grade. That's I, when I learned I was double-jointed. Yeah, I sat in his seat for the first time in fourth grade, and then I met him and dis- and discussed sportscasting with him when I was 11. See, you're a sportscaster prodigy. That was my first year I won a championship. Oh, man. In football. Brian. My first football championship I won. You're such a stud. You're such a one-upper, dude. I try, you know. That was the, I think that was the year I cured uh, muscular dystrophy. <laughs> you, wow. Oh, not really. I didn't, I didn't really. I didn't do anything really amazing. It's kind you didn't. Of... You didn't do anything amazing. No, you're a doctor. That's true. Okay, <laughs> that's true. Hey, and by the way, Spence, you you can't. When I'm eating lunch in the lunchroom, you can't come up and have me check moles because I'm not that kind of doctor. But I was really concerned about it. I know. I'm not that kind of doctor. I know it only got I'm like weird. A head doctor. It only got weird when what you were of, like looking really close at my neck. What, no. kind of doctor, what kind of doctor are you? I'm, I just am a doctor in human development. Human development. So I can help you develop. Brian. Is that a real doctor? Well, again, I'm not a mole checker. <laughs> so what can you help me develop? Humans. <laughs> you mean like? Uh, you know what I'll help you with, Brian? Are you married? Yes, I am married. Stop by my office. Dude, in all okay. seriousness, he's amazing. Like, you really should. Well, change okay. your life. I mean, I've, I've, I, I helped break up Jerem and Spencer because they were fighting. We sent Jerem away. 
Nice. He's gone for who knows how long. I actually saw him yesterday. We needed a break. That was awkward. I have a kid, too. I have a three-year-old I have son. parenting advice galore. Man, I can't wait. And I get to see my kids twice a month now. Oh, Ooh. ramping it up. <laughs> yep. Maybe we could just keep on the, the, my wife first. <laughs> That's twice as much <laughs> as last month. That's a good segue to what we're talking about What today, are we talking actually? about on the show? Okay, uh, BYU's head volleyball coach, Chris McGowan. I heard. Resigned. Kind of out of left field yesterday. Just wants to be with his family. And he wants to spend more time with his daughters and, and be around his family. That's and now, great. Here's the thing, though. He's leaving a job that is one of the premier coaching jobs in all in of volleyball. NCAA volleyball. So what that probably says, though, and I don't want to create rumors, is there's more to it. Yeah, he's going to join the show today. Okay. We're going straight to the horse's mouth Pick to his find brain. out you know, what, what went into this. Maybe it's too stressful and you have to bring it home. Well, you, know? you t- absolutely have to take your job home, whether you want to or not. Like Any job? Can you say any job, or is that specifically to coaching? Coaching is so hard. Especially, yeah, at that level in volleyball. Office. Yeah. Sports, athletics, it's almost like 24-7. And you know he second. just goes home and just drills his kids with volleyball <laughs> drills. <laughs> dive! Dive! Ugh! <laughs> So sad. So That'll be a great he, interview. He, That's he's, cutting yeah. news. He's going to join us uh, on the uh, day after he officially announces his resignation from BYU Volleyball. Mm. We'll talk about some of the uh, guys that come to top of mind and that could step in and, and fill his position. We also have a huge guest joining us from Auckland, New Zealand, Manasse Tulunafasi. He's, he's Remember coming him? on. Totally. Totally. He's, he's joining us. It will be at like four something in the morning oh, in New wow. Zealand when he's on with us. What is he doing? Why? I don't know. That's our first question. Why are you up? <laughs> he's going to be mad, folks. you guys. When he comes here, he's going to be mad like, you guys woke me up. You stole my sleep. <laughs> you stole my sleep. He's, he's going to be a big deal. I'm going to predict huge things out of that, that big man. Loaded show, to say the least. That's great. Yeah, of course. You do it every time. We try. And you got Brian for crying out loud. For some people, yeah. that's a great thing. That's all you need. Not, Spen- <laughs> not, not for Spencer, though. No. <laughs> what? Brian's locked and loaded. And Brian, just stop by my office. Bring your wife. We'll work some stuff out. Um, how about we do just, just me and you first? Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, yeah. let's do a solo session. You one-on-one and I, session we'll have a little. We'll have, yeah, that's good. We'll have a one-on-one. Okay, we'll, we'll fi- once we fix you, it'll all go. Hey, back. honey. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we need to go see yeah. a counselor. Go see a counselor. <laughs> I'm going to send you to a counselor. <laughs> that, don't do that. That'll don't go over well. Hey, guys, have a great show. And we'll see you, Brian, a little bit later. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Interesting. That is interesting. Uh, Would you quit one of the best volleyball jobs, coaching jobs, in the entire NCAA? There's got to be a reason. But you know what? Family first. Family first. It's such a hard thing. We've had a killer show. Man, we've talked about pretty much everything. We've talked about families. Jimmy Crack Corn has... You know, he's still married. You still married, Jim? Yeah, I am. We used to call you James. Not anymore. Not well, after because I got married. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy, the other guy. Mm-hmm. If I want to make it big, I have to be named Jimmy. We're, we're calling you Jimmy. Yeah, Crackcorn. Uh, Jimmy Crackcorn. So you're still married. Life's good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's pretty fun. You seem happier, by the way. You smell great. <laughs> Every time I walk in the studio, I'm like, Wow. Yeah, there were big changes after after marriage, uh, one of them namely being deodorant. Well, so, hygiene. Yeah, hygiene in general, including <laughs> deodorant. So That's great. Did she just buy that for you or did she like spray you before you leave? 
Yeah, it's one of the. She surprises me. Like she hides around <laughs> the the corner. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's the married life. Yeah, get used to it. Rest of your life. You'll be sprayed when you least expect it. Hey, we like to do a hero story every uh, day on the show to wrap it up so you have something positive to think about. Our hero today is 10-year-old Alyssa De La Sala and the entire Florida community that she lives in. Here's basically the story. Just over two years ago, a fire destroyed the home of the De La Sala family in Florida. They hired a contractor to help rebuild the home, but after paying him for the work— they, uh, the guy left with only doing half the job. So seeing that her family was struggling to finish their home, the 10-year-old Alyssa decided to do something about it. She wrote a letter and sent it into a local radio show, uh, The Kane Show, and she asked that they read the letter on the air and let everybody in the community know that she was going to host a lemonade stand to help raise money for her home. After reading the letter, The Kane Show put a picture of the letter on Facebook and reached out to local news stations— The word spread like wildfire, and by the time the day of the fundraiser came around, there were so many in attendance to buy lemonade from Alyssa that police had to direct the traffic. People flooded in paying $500, even $1,000 for a cup of lemonade. Businesses donated materials needed to complete the home, and even the first responders that responded to the original house fire years ago were there in support. All in all, Alyssa's lemonade stand raised $10,000 to complete uh, the renovation of her home, the fix of her home. Alyssa De La Sala, you are my hero of the day, my friend. That is a young person that just gets it. We just go to work. We just do what we got to do. And on the show, that's what we're trying to instill in the hearts and minds of all of us is you can have a great story. She had a great reason why she shouldn't have stepped in. It's She's a little girl. She didn't need to do that, right? But the reasons and the stories don't matter. In the end, what it comes down to is what do you want to happen? If you want action to take place, you can't just keep going with your story. You need to actually create the story that will deliver the results that you need in life. And so, Alyssa, thanks for being a great role model to us all. And will you just please listen to your heart? What is your heart telling you that you need to go step up and do? Do you need to go back to school? Is that what you've been feeling? Do you need to maybe lighten up on your job a little bit and focus a little bit more on family, like our great BYU volleyball coach that just quit? Whatever it is, let your heart be your guide. We're out of here, friends. Remember, we can't do the show without you. We're back here tomorrow. Another uh, great idea, another show full of tools for you to uh, grow a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, we'll talk again tomorrow.